crossroads of empires, battleground of the ages, city of peace and of war. This is Jerusalem, where archaeology uncovers the empires of yesterday, where prophecy decodes the headlines of today. This is where history and prophecy come alive. This is Watch Jerusalem. Hello and welcome back to Watch Jerusalem. I'm your host, Brent Noctegal. Thank you very much for listening today. I am in, Is- I am in Israel, specifically Jerusalem today. I'm not planning on traveling out uh, to the Gaza border again. I did that last week. Uh, if you haven't listened to last week's program, I basically took my audio recorder with me and left it on throughout the day. And then as we were traveling to different locations while under fire from Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad from the Gaza Strip, I recorded the audio and, and cobbled together a, a program for you. It wasn't the best edited program, um, but I just thought it was important to get this information to you quickly trying to give you a sense of what the Israeli civilians, or the threat the Israeli civilians are under and have been under for about 15 years. I had so many um, comments come in from, from concerned people that listen to the program. I think it's about, uh, about a thousand people have listened to it by now, um, about how they were concerned for my safety and, and um, just, just wishing me the best and, and for protection. They said they were praying for my protection, my family's protection. And that was very much uh, appreciated, but I just want everyone to know that what I was going through last week, if you haven't listened to that, it does sound extreme. And yes, we were running from missiles and rockets, but that is the situation for 200,000 Israeli civilians, often for the past 15 years in and around the Gaza border. This is what they live with, children growing up um, with post-traumatic stress because all they've known is running to shelters at any time of day or night, at school, at home, doesn't matter, and for the chance of, of being um, killed by, this, by these, the constant barrage of rockets that comes over by Iranian-backed terrorist groups in the Gaza Strip. And of the, uh, just, uh, just referring back to last Saturday and Sunday, um, of the 690 rockets that came over, about 200 of those were shot out of the sky by the Iron Dome defensive missile system. And this is a very highly effective system. It, it, it um, hit out of the sky 86% of every one that it targeted. Of course, about 400 plus weren't even targeted by the Iron Dome because they were due to land in in areas that weren't a populated center, and so they deem them not worthy. I think they forget how much they cost a pop. It's tens of thousands of dollars each time one of these is fired. Uh, one of these missiles is fired to protect from one of the incoming rockets. Uh, but I was talking to some Israelis over the past couple of days, and they were talking about how many of the residents in the South would rather that the Iron Dome didn't exist. The Iron Dome is perpetuating the situation where... Israel and these residents in the south are constantly having to run to their shelters. Yes, in the immediate term, you would have more Israeli casualties than just the four that died um, last weekend, but that would would necessitate or precipitate Israel having stronger action against the Gaza terrorists. They would invade. They would put a stop to it if the Iron Dome system didn't exist. And now Israel has this kind of buffer that downplays or or minimizes what's actually happening. 690 rockets and mortars fired on your sovereign territory 
and the army decides not to go to full-on war, or this isn't a decision, they don't decide They don't decide to just remove the threat. The threat still exists. Hamas and PIJ have thousands of other rockets sitting there waiting to be launched. Yes, Israel did attack, I think, about three different, 300 different installations of some sort on the Gaza Strip, but it's basically just waiting for the next time, waiting for the next moment. This is a situation that isn't going away. Um, and the Iron Dome system, though it does save lives, um, uh, is kind of perpetuating this, uh, what's going on, the status quo, preserving this with neither side being victorious. And so that's what we have right now. And, and there are no easy solutions to this, what's going on in Gaza. I did write an article following that, um, uh, following the podcast last week of some of the details that we went through that you heard on the podcast, but also some more takeaways from that day and the visit and this the policy in Gaza and how difficult it is to find a solution for it. I mean, you could say there's no Iron Dome, so Israel should go in strong. If there wasn't an Iron Dome and they would fix the situation, go in strong, take over the Gaza Strip, reoccupy the Gaza Strip. But then you have 2 million Palestinians inside Gaza that are underneath Israeli military rule. Uh, what would be the solution after that? How, would that be a better solution? Would that be an easier solution? And as I bring out in that article, there are no man-made solutions right now to what's going on in Gaza, Um, especially considering that these are terrorists that are backed by Iran, funded, directed, weaponized in every way. Iran's fingerprints are over everything in the Gaza Strip. That's what the IDF spokesperson said last week. And it's a fact that you will not hear much about, surprisingly, Surprisingly, especially at this time, this time when you've got um, the United States bolstering its forces in the Middle East to try and counter real Iranian threats on their allies. And all you hear about is how aggressive America is in the region, pushing the region towards war. And nobody talks about what just happened. Iranian-backed terrorists firing 690 rockets towards Israeli civilians. Why have people forgotten about that even in Israel? I mean, it took till Monday, Monday night, and I went to Jerusalem Post, Times of Israel, and the coverage was pretty much gone. Coverage was pretty much gone. This was just another flare-up, as they call it. Of course, they're not, Israelis aren't happy about this at all. I'm not saying that, but the, the, the media is just over it, forgotten that... A, a terrorist that are sponsored by a state actor, Iran, just declared war on another state and a, week's, a week has gone by and we don't hear anything about it. Or worse, worse, we hear of the United States' actions to try and counter the Iran, Iranian rise and counter those threats that, they, that, Israeli, uh, that uh, U.S. soldiers were facing last weekend. And bringing more troops into the region, as we'll cover here in a second, and how it's all America's fault. It's not Iran. And this is um, misreporting the facts completely, a distortion of reality. The truth is that Iran leads the biblically prophesied king of the south, Islamist back Islamist nations that are going to push the world towards World War III. That's what the Bible says in Daniel chapter 11 and verse 40. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall push at him. That is the king of the north. 
And this radical Islamist uh, kingdom led by Iran is the king of the south. And they push, 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 push until they get some pushback, until somebody says, no, you don't. And right now, temporarily, we have the United States that is showing some force. And unsurprisingly, the Iranians are recoiling. The Iranians aren't acting, at least in Iraq and in, in Kuwait, and, and uh, there were reports out today that even the Iranian-backed Houthis were pulling out of Hodeida, this port on the west coast of Yemen, um, for the moment. And so they may be contained for the time being by the United States' actions and by Israel's strength as well, especially referring to their actions in Syria. But this is only a temporary thing. The Bible says that Iran will not go away. They are going to push. There will be no regime change in Iran. Uh, as in as much that that would be desired by lots of Iranians and also lots of Iranians or expatriates or lo- around the world that have left the Iranian nation because of the regime's hold. There's plenty of people want to want that regime to change, but Bible prophecy says we are still going to have an Iranian nation that is pushing the world towards war based on is is its Islamic uh, beliefs. That is what's going to happen. And so right now we do have a situation, though, in the Middle East where they have temporarily been restrained. That, too, has been prophesied as well, that there would be a temporary resurgence by the United States. And that we are seeing that take place now geopolitically, geopolitically with these troop movements of the United States. Now, back last year, um, there was uh, President Trump decided that he was going to pull out of Syria and a lot of his advisors came on and said, this is a bad decision. Don't do it. We're, re- we're there right now, not because of the Islamic State, but we're there to contain Iran. And Iran wants to control this entire region. If they do, we can say bye-bye to Israel in the north of Israel in terms of at least, uh, probably not bye-bye to Israel, but that they would be attacked by, this, by the Iranian regime that would control southern Lebanon and the border of the Golan Heights with Syria. And his advisors said, you, you can't do that. That's not going to be good. We're going to lose our ally in the Middle East, the greatest ally that the United States has in the Middle East. We would lose them um, if he decides to go through with this, or at least the, the relationship would be severely weakened uh, because of it. And he kind of reverses his decision. Uh, Mr. Trump has. There's still U.S. forces in eastern Syria. We then had the Golan Declaration being recognized as Israeli sovereign territory following up after that. And now we have the, the, the pullout of the nuclear deal, the reestablishment of sanctions, no more oil waivers going to nations that could import uh, oil. They, they ended on May 2nd, just last week, and now there was extra sanctions that were then put on other industries um, uh, related to the metal industry inside Iran. Another 10% of their economy about to be hit by sanctions. And so the Iranians don't have much money to work with to fund their terrorism across the Middle East. And now we have U.S. forces that are responding to concrete threats from the Iranian regime to then uh, swell the region with American troops. That's what's happening right now. I've got an article before me. It's entitled B-52s, Patriots, F-35s and more, America's Mideast Deployment Rundown. And this is by Seth Fransman from May 12th, which is today published uh, just an hour before I'm recording this. 
And this is what he says. In recent days, the United States has announced the deployment of an array of military power to the Middle East as tensions grow with Iran. On Friday, the U.S. State Department defense officials approved the addition of the USS Arlington and a Patriot battery to the U.S. Central Command to fill a, a request last week. The additional forces come as tensions with Iran are rising. And the United States has warned Iran that any attack by Iranian forces or their proxies will be met with retaliation. And then it lists all these forces that are deployed. What's interesting about this is when Mr. Bolton came out and said last week, I think it was May 5th, that the United States is going to uh, bring in a a strike uh, or an aircraft carrier group. And this would include the uh, USS Abraham Lincoln. That was already in the in the Mediterranean late last week, and he decided that it's time to pull that that um, uh, uh, air force carrier or air- aircraft carrier, sorry, uh, to the Gulf, to the Persian Gulf, and now so that has already journeyed through the Suez Canal and it's en route through the, about to go through the Straits of Hormuz maybe in the next couple of days, and so that'll be there. But then the United States also said they're going to bring in some B-52 bombers. They arrived in Qatar on Thursday. There's two of four that are being sent to the region. And then we have this um, uh, USS Arlington that is being sent there right now as well. Apparently, this is part of the 6th Fleet, which normally operates in the Mediterranean and the Atlantic. And this is going to be joining the forces inside the Persian Gulf. This is a 24,000-ton, uh, 207-meter-long ship built back in 2013 it's an amphibious uh, is a san antonio class amphibious transport vessel and this can this can transport 800 u.s marines and about a dozen vehicles and so this is this is to move forces this is to move forces for ground operations across water something that might become necessary from the united states uh, point of view if iran decides to to act there's also um the 22nd Marine Expeditionary Unit that's been brought in straight through the Straits of Hormuz recently. Um, another amphibious group, Ready Group, is there. There's another destroyer that's just been brought in. Uh, destroyer USS McFall and the ammunition ship USNS Allen Shepard. They were photographed coming through the Strait of Hormuz on May 7th. They were in the Red Sea in April. And then you also have the movement of Patriot Missile Defense Battery as well. This is to protect U.S. forces in the region from ballistic missile strikes and other strikes. And then in mid-April, there were more F-35s that were sent to the United Arab Emirates here in the Persian Gulf to counter what Iran is planning. And there was some reports that Iran was planning to strike U.S. forces in Kuwait and um, other regions. There was the visit by U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo to Iraq last week as well. He called off a visit to Germany where he was going to discuss with Angela Merkel the Nord Stream pipeline and other things. And he decided it was more important to come and talk to the Iraqi government and ask them and tell them, warn them, that if part of your official military now, these the, the Shiite militias that don't actually answer to the Iraqi military uh, hierarchy, but actually answer to Iran, that are now on the payroll of the, of the Iraqi government, he came and told them and says, you restrain those forces. I know they answer to Iran, but you do your best to restrain those forces or else we are going to attack. And so the U.S. right now has about 5,000 troops still in still in Iraq, and it looks like they did receive some assurances from the Iraqis that they were going to do their best to make them restrain. So 
We'll see what happens. This week is going to be very interesting. The U.S. is positioning itself to strike if it has to. And often, shows of force like this do prevent war. That's what I wrote about um, earlier last week about this American truth movement. Historically, U.S. force in the region actually makes the region safer, not more dangerous, because Iran acts on the credible use of force by the United States, or let's say they act by not acting. That is what they do. And so with U.S. forces there, maybe we will see um, a, a period of calm, a period of calm here in the Middle East, um, and a slowdown of what Iran is doing. But make no mistake, make no mistake, the United States isn't the aggressor here. This is the United States finally saying no. For the past eight years, the Iranian uh, king of the South, as the Bible calls it, has been unleashed, unrestrained by President Obama, by the desire to have some type of deal with the Iranian regime. And so when it comes in terms of Syria and the Syrian civil war in Iraq, the United States had to have a handoff policy from restraining Iran or else they would have walked away from the nuclear deal in 2015. And then you had the U.S. pay them $150 billion or at least release funds to give them strength for the last couple of years to fund the Syrian civil war and fund the the military might of their proxies, uh, Hezbollah, Hamas, and others. And so now we have the United States that's kind of just saying, under President Trump, all right, Iran, you've had your free reign for a while. This stops right now. And we'll see how they respond Again, Iran is prophesied to lead the, Bibli- the, the king of the south. And this is a group of nations that believes in the tenets of radical Islam that will push the world to World War III. That is what your Bible says. Iran is the aggressor. The United States looks for the moment to put a temporary hold on, those, on, the, on the movements of Iran. But we'll see how effective that will be. This first segment went a little bit longer than I anticipated, but it's good to capture uh, what's going on in the Middle East right now. We are going to take a short break, though, and when we come back, we'll turn our attention to archaeology finally, and we'll go over these recent studies that have been produced, one of which that identifies biblical King Balak on the Mesha Stele. Now, this is very interesting because it is another broadside against the kingdom of David, And uh, we'll cover that when we come back. This is Watch Jerusalem, where history and prophecy come alive. Thank you for listening. Hello and welcome back to Watch Jerusalem. We're turning our attention to biblical archaeology right now. And this is kind of a story that made uh, headlines everywhere. It even made the headlines of the Drudge Report as well, because it was a story that kind of, as, as it's been reported, proved the Bible or proved portions of the Bible. A biblical king, it says. A biblical king has been identified by scholars. 
And so this is just a really uh, sinister attack, though, on biblical truth, on the biblical narrative, actually. Don't be, don't be excited about, about this, like Fox News was and all these others, that, hey, biblical King Balak, king of the Moabites, king of the Moabites back, I guess it was about 1200, 1300 BCE, he has been potentially discovered on an artifact called the Misha Stele. And what they fail to mention, or at least what they what the, is underreported, is that if it does say Balak, then it doesn't say David, which has been um, the best and most suited theory for the past twenty years. That inscription here on the Mishastella actually says House of David. And so I'm going to go through a couple of articles right now. I think uh, what's amazing about this is that there has been a study, and the stu- well, there's a study about to come out, but much much of it has already been released. It actually proves more that it says House of David, not Balak not King Balak. And in fact, all they have for King Balak is B, the letter B. And so others have been joking about it, saying that everybody's reporting about this being Balak or possibly being Balak. And even the title of the study that they made, which I'm very surprised by, by these archaeologists, the study says, uh, restoring line 31 of the Misha Stella, the house of David or biblical Balak. It's one or the other. It's the house of David or biblical Balak. These are the scholars that want to say that it doesn't say David. And all they have, as they even admit in their paper, is uh, is a word, as they would say, of three letters of length. And the first letter is the only one they know. And so, as others have said, it could be King Bilbo, it could be King Barak, it could be King whatever study. And so why they're saying Balak in the title of their paper, it just shows that they're out to get David. They're trying to say, oh, but we've found another king. This could be from another king that's mentioned in the Bible, but it can't be David. And all they have to go on is the very first letter of the name. That's it. And it's even anachronistic because Balak is described, uh, well, this this uh, this inscription is from like, I think it's a 9th century or 900s around that. And it's 300 years after Balak anyway. Anyhow, I do, uh, instead of just having a rant about this, we're going to go through some of the uh, this study itself. And I think the best article to go through this, and I do suggest that you read it, and I think it's it's highly understandable as well, uh, is writ- written by Amanda Borshaldan. This is in the Times of Israel. It was reported, I guess, two weeks ago now, and it's entitled, High-Tech Study of Ancient Stone Suggests New Proof of King David's Dynasty. And so you've got every other newspaper, every other scientific journal publishing this evidence of a diff- of, of, of the same Misha Stella, we're publishing a story on the same Misha Stella, and they choose to show, say that, hey, it could be King Balak, and yet we have more evidence that it's actually King David. And nobody chooses to, to discuss that, as far as I can tell, in, in the mainstream media, apart from the Times of Israel and this article from Amanda Borshaldan says this, since the 1990s, scholars have pointed to a barely readable bit of text on a nearly 3,000-year-old stone as possibly the first extra-biblical historical proof of the Davidic monarchy. The reading, based upon decades of educated guesses, is notable for what can't be fully discerned in the Moabite script almost as much as what can. So you've got this, you've got this inscription 
from almost 3,000 years ago. That's very hard to read because parts of it have broken. Because when it was discovered and uh, when it was about to be shipped off to museums and such, the people that had it broke it in a thousand pieces or seven pieces or something like that. And then it was hard to, well, just before they broke it, they made an impression of it so that you would have at least the impression would survive or at least um, well, that would be another evidence of it. But that was ripped in pieces as well. And so over the past hundred years, they've tried to put back this stone together, this big monument together to try and read what it says. And right where you've got a critical portion on line 31, there is a, there is, it's very difficult to read and discern this uh, inscription. And so there's a couple of letters that we know and a couple that we don't. And it has been said that this is probably saying House of David. House of David. And this is how other foreign nations referred to uh, the kingdom of Judah. They hardly ever said Judah or kingdom of Judah. They would say the house of David. And we see this from the Tel Dan inscription, which says House of David. This is a, a different, uh, the Aramean kings that were writing about David's dynasty or the kingdom of Judah. Instead of saying, the, I you know, took over this king from the kingdom of Judah, I say, we took over him from the house of David. He is the forerunner. David is. King David. And all of the kings that come from him and the kingdom that comes from him is going to be named after or known by David. And they do this with the Mishastella as well. Other elsewhere on the Mishra Stella, it actually talks about King Omri, uh, King Omri from the north and the house of Omri, referring to the kings that came after him, house of Omri, house of David. And so it made sense that this would say house of David from what we could read, uh, what we can discern. And that's what the original people that deciphered this talked about. That was their, that was their summation. However, that changed a couple of weeks ago because it could say Balak according to these scholars, uh, as we will cover. But then again, at the same time, there was more proof that it was from David, or it mentions David, as we'll cover also. This is uh, continuing from Amanda Borschel, Dan's article, a pair of dueling papers, one of which was released on Thursday, again puts the tiny bit of inscription, as well as primitive copies of it, under a microscope, offering divergent views on what the 9th century Misha Stella arguably offers. In a paper published in the Journal of the Institute of Archaeology of Tel Aviv University on Thursday, a trio of scholars dismiss dismisses a decades-old hypothesis that line 31 of the stele, or the, this monument, refers to Bet David, or the biblical house of David. And so they're saying, according to this new this new uh, reading of the inscription that it mentions, it doesn't say House of David as we thought it probably said. Instead, it sounds like it spells something different. Now, there are a couple of what we know for sure from this, and I do really uh, want you to go and get this article if you haven't read it because it does make sense. We have a couple of letters. We have a, a bet. And then we have a gap of a couple of letters, probably space for two. And then we have a Vav and a Dalit. And the Vav and the Dalit there are the two last letters for David, Dalit, Vav, Dalit. And that would be David. And then Bet is the first letter uh, or, or, or is the letter B, basically. And we're missing what would be, if it says House of David, we're missing the, the T sound, Tet, uh, Tuff, sorry. And then we're also miss, missing, missing the, the first Dalit of David. If we had those two letters, it would say B, T or Bet, and then Dalit Vav Dalit David. Now they're saying, these other people, that it doesn't say um, Bet, uh, well, it says those three letters, 
but it can't say David from what they write. And we'll just read why, what arguing argument they have. This is uh, from Amanda Borshall Dan's article again. This is just after the sun subhead plan B, if you're following along. But this reading of the Misha Stella still rests on the assumption that the missing letters would fill in the rest of the word to spell out House of David. She's saying how we get to House of David. Now, however, based on new interpretations of high-resolution images of the paper squeeze, so this uh, impression that was made of the original um, Misha Stella, Two Tel Aviv University professors, archaeologist Israel Finkelstein and Jewish historian Nadav Naaman, and uh, colleague de France, biblical scholar Thomas Romer, are proposing that the hypothesized documentation of a Davidic dynasty should be dismissed. No, it can't be. It can't be saying House of David. And here is our proof. First, who are these people? Israel Finkelstein. Nadav Naaman, these are renowned biblical minimalists who've made a living of trying to dismiss evidence of David's kingdom. And you have Thomas Romer, who he himself has done exactly the same thing. So you have three of the most notorious anti-David scholars that are coming together to write this paper upon new evidence of why it doesn't say, say House of David. Now, why did they choose... To, to go and get the Misha Stila and look at this line. Well, they don't believe it says House of David. That's their original position. They've made a living off and written book, books and published books and gotten grants off left-leaning universities because of their position that David's kingdom doesn't exist. And now they're going to go and study one of the potential evidences of David and say that it can't be. Now, I'm pretty sure that would have been their uh, hypothesis when they began. That would be their starting position. And so the evidence as they see it confirmed exactly, exactly what they thought all along. And so surprise, surprise, they do a study on it and it can't say David. In, uh, then quoting from Borshal Dan here, in Restoring Line 31 in the Misha Stella, the House of David or Biblical Balak, that's the title, or Balak, I forget how people pronounce this, Balak or Balak, the trio describes an important vertical stroke that, according to the authors, marks a transition between two sentences. And so basically what they're saying is when they've done new imagery of this, they have found a vertical stroke in between these letters and right before this Vav, so you remember you've got of this of this uh, inscription, you've got space for about six letters or something like that, and you've got the Bet at the B sound at the beginning, space, space, and then a Vav Dalit. They say, we see a vertical stroke right now on this inscription that apparently nobody has seen before. We see that. And this stroke announces that we have a new sentence. And so this can't be House of David because that would be within one sentence. We, in fact, have the end of one sentence and the start of a new sentence. And so we have B, space, space, divider, and then we have Vav Dalit, beginning a new sentence. And so it doesn't say House of David, based on our evidence. And it could say anything else. And we think it says Balak. We think it says Balak because we have a B. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, let's go back to this. In the interpreting the new images, the renowned scholars, none of whom are trained epigraphers, I, I really I do appreciate that, um, 
Amanda Borshall Dan. If you're listening to this, thank you for putting that in uh, parentheses there because none of them are trained epigraphers that wrote this paper. Um, uh, they aren't. They are renowned scholars and they do do good archaeological fieldwork for sure. Not saying that. They're highly intelligent um, uh, authors and, and but definitely disagree with their process and also the fact that they're not epigraphers yet. They're trying to. Stu- they're, they are studying epigraphy here. They cautiously propose that perhaps the name of the biblical king, Moabite king Balak, is re- recorded there instead. And so I love this. It's like anything but David. We can believe in lots of parts of the Bible, but just not David. So we're going to assign a different biblical king to um, this inscription, and that biblical king is going to be a Moabite biblical king. In the Bible, Balak predates David by hundreds of years. In one of the Stranger episodes, and then it just talks about how Balak is mentioned in the Bible. And so this is just very interesting that they decide to uh, report on this. I'm just going to go to a different article now, and then I'll come back to it. Uh, this is uh, smashed. This is from Live Science. So this is a really popular, um, uh, really popular uh, scientific journal. And I think this is one the one that was actually linked on Drudge. It has a, an article entitled, Smashed Ancient Tablets Suggest Biblical King Was Real. And so I just hate how this narrative is being portrayed that, well, do we want the biblical king to be real? In this case, we don't, because they're saying the biblical king being Balak, when it doesn't say Balak. Well, there's no proof for it saying Balak. And then it says, but not everyone agrees. But I'm just going to go to the very last para- couple paragraphs here. It says the authors acknowledge the, this gap in the study. So they acknowledge that they're just, you know, saying it could be Balak when it could mean any other name, according to them, even though they refer to it in the title. You talk about sensationalists. The people knock like Dr. Mazar and others for having sensationalist headlines that kind of grab attention. They put, is it not David, but Balak in the very title of their study to try and grab attention. And they have no proof that it's Balak. The authors acknowledged this gap in the study, quote, to give a sense of authenticity to this story, the Meshistella's author must have integrated into the plot certain elements borrowed from ancient reality. This is quoting uh, Finkelstein. And so there's, they're saying that Balak in the Bible was a couple hundred years up before this. And so when they're writing this history or when this King Mesha is writing this history, He's going to write about Balak, but he's getting his history confused because this was so much earlier uh, than his reign. In other words, quote, the study shows how a story in the Bible may include layers or memories from different periods, which were woven together by later authors into a story aimed to advance their ideology and theology. It shows that the question of historicity in the Bible cannot be answered in a simplistic yes or no answer. And so... He's making judgments on biblical historicity on his judgment or hypothesis that it says Balak because it's anachronistic to say Balak because Balak didn't exist at that point. He's from 100 years earlier and he's describing events in the 9th century. And so to legitimize his own kingdom, the king of Moab, Mesha, is bringing in this Balak character. But it shows us that, as he says, that we can't trust the Bible because it's a bunch of memories that's put together. And so he's basing this conclusion on the fact, as he would see it, that says Balak, but it doesn't say Balak. And so it's just an example of how twisted the reasoning can get. Okay, 
back to the actual article by Borshal Dan here. This is then quoting um, Michael Langlois. I don't I'm very butch. It's a French name, apparently. He studies uh, historical and uh, philological sciences at the Sorbonne uh, in, in Paris. Uh, he is an epigrapher. And this is his his paper is about to come out, but Borshal Dan, I guess she went to some type of um, symposium or something about the Misha Stella because it's been 150 years since it was first discovered. And um, he was speaking there and he, he comes to a totally different conclusion. He's been studying this thing for the past three years. He's been in the Louvre. He's taken different, uh, as we'll get to, different photographs of it. And him and his team say that David or House of David is the best possible um, deciphering of the Misha Stella. Contacted by the Times of Israel uh, this week, Lang Lui, that's how I'll pronounce it, Lang Lui, was similarly dismissed of the Balak, similarly dismissive of the Balak hypothesis. Puzzled, he said, quote, there is no such divider on the picture, including on the picture they used. <laughs> so if you read through that paper, if you read through their paper from uh, from Finkelstein and Co, they have they have this picture, and they they decided that the whole basis of them this saying this can't be the House of David is this dividing line apparently that's that's before the Vav, and he says I'm looking at this picture, and I can't find this dividing line, and so the whole basis for their argument that it's not House of David is pretty flawed from the very beginning. I'm just going to read now more from this article. Lang Louis has spent years poring over these lines of text and will soon publish a groundbreaking paper that employs a mix of high-tech imaging, imaging to confirm the House of David is the most likely reading of the line be- being looked at. There are many ways in which the faint letters can be read, said the Sabon-trained Lang, Lang Louis, but the House of David interpretation definitely cannot be ruled out. Quite the contrary. Likewise, in terms of the other researchers' papers' claims that there's not enough space to write House of David, Lang Louis said, quote, The space is exactly perfect. No more, no less. With a backing in formal sciences, including mathematics, computer science, physics, chemistry, a few years ago, Langlois decided to take on a long-term project in which he would utilize computer algorithms to perform polynomial textual mapping of the stele. The result would be a much more detailed 3D image using photographs of the stone itself, as well as the paper squeeze. Using reflective transformation imaging, RTI, essentially taking pictures of the artifact from a variety of angles and light sources, in 2015, Lang Louis and a team of scientists provided photographed the stele in its original squeeze and its original squeeze at the Louvre, as well as additional squeezes in the Academy of Inscriptions and Fine Letters. Additionally, in 2018, the Louvre, with the help of a professional photographer, created a high-resolution backlit image of the squeeze, which also indicates the depth of engraving. After laying the, layering the images together, in a startling discovery, Langlois found a previously overlooked dot, which indicates a break of break between words throughout the entire tablet, as was customary among the scribes at the time. And so he didn't find a line or a streak like the others find. He found dots over this. Dots which, act, which actually separate words. The word breaking dot, which is very clear under the new imaging, comes exactly after the area interpreted to read House of David, 
and indicates a space after the final dalit of David. That rules out the Tel Aviv University paper's proposal, proposed vertical stroke, said Lang Louis. No sentence could start before the Vav, since there are no Moabite words that are spelled only with a Vav and a final Dalid. There's no word that is, can be even spelt that way in the Moabite language, they say. Then he says, Lang Lui repeatedly stated to the Times of Israel that he's not trying to prove the Bible. However, he said, from a purely historical standpoint, the most obvious solution is that there was a kingdom of David. We know of this kingdom of David. It's been reported on by uh, documents of the same time as this Meshastella up in Tel Dan. We know it from the Bible that there's a kingdom of David. We know Bet David is the term that they used outside the nation to describe the kingdom of David following the breakup of, of, the, king of the, the kingdom of Israel and kingdom of Judah. And so everything historically fits out. It should say House of David. That's not anachronism. That's perfect. So why fight so hard against it? Why set out as a scholar to go with your couple of friends that don't even believe David had a kingdom to go and attack the very possible interpretation, the most likely interpretation of it, and come up with some crazy idea that actually mentions a king from only mentioned in the Bible from 300 years earlier of the Moabites? When the simplest, easiest solution to understand this, based on the facts as we see them and as the other uh, evidence that is coming out, is that it says House of David. It checks out. And so here we have, again, these scholars that hate David. These scholars that hate the biblical narrative with David as the originator of a united monarchy over Israel and Judah, a strong David, a David whom build, who prepares to build the temple, moves the ark to Jerusalem, focuses the religion of ancient Israel where it needs to be, leads to a religious revival in Israel and Judah, and then establishes with his son a kingdom over everything this side of the river, as it says, from the Euphrates this way towards the Mediterranean, and establishes in his son a biblical promise that his throne has always going to have a man sitting on it, and that day God is going to build David a sure house. It says Bet David, house of David's interesting, because the Bible says that David, you, you've built me a house. I'm going to build of you a sure house. And I'm not talking about a palace. I'm talking about a kingly line called the house of David, called Bet David, as the Meshastella most likely reads, that's going to go on and continue all the way to the coming of the Messiah. That's what it says throughout the Bible. That's the promise of the Bible. That's the promise of the Davidic covenant. And you've got scholars that are just trying to tear that down every way that they can. But, the same time more evidence comes out like this article i really do suggest you go back and read this article again high-tech study of ancient stone suggests new proof of king david's dynasty we're going to update our article on the misha stella on watch jerusalem we have one there but we will update it to show this new evidence and we will we will put in there we haven't done it yet but we're going to talk about the the lengths to which these anti-bible scholars who predicate their whole uh study on on denying david's kingdom uh, we'll put that in there as well, and then we'll put this new evidence that makes it seem that it says that House of David is the, the best possible reading of this inscription. 
again, supporting the biblical narrative. That might not be the purpose of this scholar from Paris, Paris, from the Savant in Paris, and all the others that worked with him, looking at the original documents from the Louvre and taking new imagery of it. That might not have been the purpose of, of his of his study, as he says, but that's how it came out in the end. He said this, quote, In my paper, I'm not trying to discuss whether King David exists, just trying to read the stone. <laughs> and my conclusion for line 31 is that the most likely reading is Bet David, which takes into account the trace letters and the combination of them, said Lang Louis. To read any other way, he said, is basically stating a refusal to believe in the possibility of a biblical King David. To read it any other way, that's what you're doing. You're stating a refusal to believe it. You've got the evidence right in front of your eyeballs, and you can't bring yourself to write it, to believe it. Quote, the new imaging technology that we have confirms the reading of Beth David. It's a good thing when science can confirm a hypothesis, he writes. And so, yes, read this article. That's right at the end. I mean, the details of this study are right at the end of it, and it's probably a couple thousand words. But if you are interested in this, and if you did read any of those other reports about King Balak being found and not really discussing the actual proof, go and read this article. I'll leave a link for you today in the show notes. Uh, and you can just click there and it'll probably take you a couple of minutes, but it will be a strong counter uh, to what you've read previously. That's all we have time for today. Thank you very much for listening in uh, to the program. We'll see what we cover next week, whether it'll be news or archaeology. I'm hoping to do some more archaeological programs over the summer here uh, from Jerusalem. If you'd like to send some feedback, uh, you can do that by writing your letters or your email, sorry, to letters at watchjerusalem.co.il. Thank you again for listening, and I'll talk to you next Sunday.